Again, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8, and 9, uh, 8 through 11. When England's King Henry VIII broke with the Roman Catholicism, England became a, officially a Protestant nation. But when his daughter Mary succeeded him on the English throne, she returned to the nation to the Catholicism and began a purge of, of the Protestants, the heretics. And some 300 Protestants were martyred in England during that five-year reign of Mary, and that's why she had the nickname Bloody Mary. Heretics were usually given a chance to recant their beliefs and be spared death. As one man wrote, the fact that the 300 died means that they remained obedient or faithful to God and conscious in the midst of the flames and the gallows. Every Christian must ask this, and this is the question. Would I remain obedient to Christ in the face of death and persecution and temptation and suffering? Would you remain faithful? Have you been asking that question lately? You know, every time you turn on news and you see ISIS and you see Al-Qaeda and you see Syria. I'm going to have to take this off. I can't, I can't keep it on my ear. Can you hear me now? Uh, you know, I asked the question, would I, be, would I remain faithful? Would I remain faithful if I was the one on my knees right there in an orange suit? And a guy behind me had a, uh, had a knife and was ready to kill me. Would I remain faithful if it wasn't me, but it was one of my, it was one of my children's children or my wife? Because many times they don't kill you, they kill someone close to you and they want you to recant. Would you remain obedient to Christ in the face of suffering and persecution and even death? And the time to settle that matter, is this going to be a problem? Okay. Can I try it this way? It just keeps popping off. Um, the time to answer it is now. This is the time to answer it. In other words, you've got to answer, am I, will I be faithful even unto death? This is the time to do it. Lord, I don't know what's coming, but I know that you're faithful. Lord, I don't know what's coming, but Lord, I, I ask that you would give me the strength. By the way, it's going to be by his strength. But you answer that question of lordship and obedience before the storm. Before the storm. And today is a good, good day to answer that question as we study this church, the persecuted church, some of your Bibles will have, or the suffering church. It's the church at Smyrna. And we just want to uh, break it apart as we have over the last few weeks with the church at Ephesus. And uh, this is going to drive me nuts. <laughs> Um, what's that? Duct tape. Is that what they said? <laughs> part of the problem is it does have duct tape. I actually duct tape this end, and I think that's part of the problem. There's no longer flexibility. I'm going to dry, drop it into seven C's as we have. And by the way, as we go through these uh, churches, each one is going to be either six or seven or eight C's. Okay? I say that because some of them do not have all the components such as this one. This one does not have a confrontation to it. God, Jesus Christ, in, in uh, writing this church, doesn't say, this is what I have against you, like he did to the church at Ephesus. But we see the first thing is that that is the commission. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, and again, the angel is most likely a pastor, the teaching elder. But he's writing... Through John, to the angel, to the star, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 20, which I believe is the pastor. And we gave a number of reasons why it most likely is not an angel. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that an angel oversees the church. But again, to the pastor, and, and again, this is a suffering church. This is a church that is under tremendous pressure, tremendous persecution, even, even the text, look at how twice in verse 9 and verse 10 it says the synagogue of Satan and the devil. I mean, the, Satan himself is trying to destroy this church. 
And throughout all of church history, there has been times where the church has not only suffered, but under extreme suffering. I mean, again, even the apostles themselves, all but one died martyrs. Peter and Bartholomew, the tradition says, were crucified upside down. Andrew, which we were studying yesterday, and Joe was telling us, was crucified on a a cross, but they turned it so it was an X. But again, crucified. Matthew died by the sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was pierced with a lance. Simon the Zealot was sawn in two. How can people do that? Matthias and Paul were beheaded. Philip reportedly died by hanging. Is our world wicked? Very, very wicked. And what you're really seeing on the news is just the heart of man. That's really what it is. It really gives us a better understanding of what Christ saved us from. It really is. Very, very wicked. You know, the Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a very interesting book. It's just, it basically is just the biographies and uh, stories of, of Christians who died and how they died. And This is what the Book of uh, Martyrs reports. These were some of the various kinds of punishments that happened Uh, up to the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Punishments and cruelties. See, people don't want to just kill Christians. They want to be cruel at it. This is what the Book of Martyrs records. And we see it even to this day. It included imprisonments, racking, racking where they stretch, searing, boiling uh, uh, water uh, uh, over you, pouring boiling water over you, Uh, burning to death, or just burning and still leaving the person alive. Scourging, stoning, hanging. Many were lanced with red-hot pinchers. Literally taking pieces of flesh from you. Some were thrown upon the horns of wild bulls. Others were sewn up in skins of wild beasts and then mauled by dogs. While still others were dressed in uh, uh, skirts made stiff with wax, fixed to trees and set on fire. End quote. The reality is, is that the heart of man is very, very dark, very, very wicked. See, we don't like, we read these stories. I know, I, you know, I've been reading different stories of martyrs and yeah, you know, that was, no, that was back in the first century. Oh no, no, that was back in the 15th, 16th century. Oh no, that was done by the Spaniards in France. Uh, no, and now you know what we're starting to see? Oh, it's coming towards us. It's coming towards us. And how, how will we respond? Will we be faithful even unto death? That's what he says in um, verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Oh, it's happening even today. I'd like to have you watch just a very short clip of a, a voice of martyr video. Do we have the lights? Imagine Islamic soldiers force your 10-year-old son to gather wood for a fire. The soldiers pressure him to convert to Islam. When he refuses, he's thrown on the burning wood. He... Okay, well, that was really good. <laughs> yeah, someday we may not even be in the church, so whether or not we have a video today is immaterial. What it was going to show you one statistic, though, that I found. Wow. 450 people per day die as martyrs. For Christianity. 450. About one, I think they said every three minutes. Isn't that amazing? They say in a year, 160,000 people die each year. 160,000. So again, you know, we hear these Christians, 10,000 here and 5,000. Oh yeah, many of them are displaced. Many of them are suffering, but many of them are dying. And not many of them aren't dying. Many of them are just, uh, not just, but are suffering huge. You know, if you had saw that uh, where they, they threw kids into the fire, mostly from uh, uh, Islam, you know, just in Sudan and, and uh, Vietnam and, and uh, China and obviously the whole, uh, um, the whole uh, Middle East. 160,000 a year from 40 nations. And one of the things that they said in the video was, this is, now this is where it gets really important. This is our family. See, we, we forget this is our family. If they're believers in Jesus Christ and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these are our family. 
This is your brothers and sisters that are, are suffering tremendous suffering at the hands of ungodly people. 160,000 per year. You might ask, is suffering really a part of God's will for my life? It says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. 1 Peter 4, 8, 19. Suffering according to the will of God. Doesn't that sound hard? That sounds very hard to me. You mean I might have to suffer and it's according to your will? Yes. Yes. And you might ask why. Why, why does God allow suffering in the first place? By the way, this is one of the big questions that theologians have asked, philosophers have asked. It, it falls under the heading of theodicy. Theodicy, it's spelled T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Theodicy. Theodicy. And, and this, is what the, this is what the question is. Why does a good God permit the manifestation of evil? Whole studies, whole uh, seminary courses just on theodicy. How is it that a good God allows the manifestation of evil? Isn't that a good question? Haven't you ever asked that? You see something happen, and that's Sudan, and they're displaced, and 25 Christians died in the church. They shut the doors. They burned the church down. How is it that you allow that, God? By the way, when, in, in the study of theodicy, there's three key words. Good, sovereign, evil. And the idea is this. God is good, sovereignly good, but he allows evil. And what philosophers and people who are not believers would try to say is, well, God is either good or he's sovereign, but he can't be both to allow evil. So you can have two, but never three. So he might be a good God, but he's not sovereign. That's why there's evil. Or he might be a sovereign God, but he's not good. That's why there's evil. Or Christian scientists would say this, well, he's a good God and sovereign God, but there's no such thing as evil. Well, obviously, we know that's wrong. Um, but theodicy would say, how do those work together? How does it work together that you have good, a good sovereign God, and yet there's still evil? And as I was saying in ABF, the only way that it could possibly happen was because why? God is sovereign, and he, could, he, he can make all things work together for good to those who love him. See, the key is this, he is sovereign. Yes, he is good, but he is sovereign, and he can, he can even use these tragedies for his purposes, for our good, and for his, uh, uh, or his uh, glory. See, there's a lot of reasons why suffering in the world, let me just give you a few. Because again, I think it's important just to kind of be reminded, and there's a whole lot more than this, but sometimes suffering happens simply for discipline. Like David. You know, that's why he cried out at the end, restore unto me the joy of your salvation, right? I mean, it was the discipline, you know, when his, when his bones were drying up, you know, after the sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. I mean, it was chastening. The suffering brought him back. Sometimes suffering in our lives is simply because of sin. That's why Corinthians says, don't go before the Lord's table because some of you have slept, some of you have died because you have gone to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Sometimes, however, it is preventative. Think of uh, Paul, thorn in the flesh, messenger from Satan. What? It was given to him, what? To keep him from what? Pride. Yes, I should be exalted above measure. Pride. So their suffering for Paul was preventative. Other times, it's for obedience. You know, the psalmist in Psalms 119 says this, It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, your law. So sometimes we are allowed to suffer because it just teaches us his word. Why? Because when I'm suffering, what happens? I run back to him. See, it's not preventative, it's not, it's not for chastening, it's for, for learning, it's for obedience. It's kind of like with Job. You know, Job said, I have heard of you, but now I see you in my eyes. In other words, now I really understand you. I've gone through the suffering. I understand you better. But I think there's another reason. In Matthew chapter 5, and I believe this is the, the church at Smyrna. I mean, some of those other things, sure, it kept them from pride. Yes, it taught them about God. But it's like Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. 
and 12. It says, blessed are you. Now catch this. This is the beatitude. The, this is, these are the blessings that God says that, that Christ preached. These are the blessings that Christians have. Blessed are you when, you re, when they revile you, when they, the ungodly world, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. I mean, blessed are you when all those things happen. Why? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think part of it is not only do we look forward to the reward, but the fact that we've walked faithful through the suffering, our reward is even greater. Do you see the difference? It's not just that we get a reward, but because we suffered for him on this earth, God rewards us even, more, even in a greater way uh, before his throne, I mean at the Bema before Christ's throne. So we, he allows suffering in our life to prove that we, that, that, that we are faithful even unto death. And again, none of us have been called to die yet. But am I, how do I handle trials, temptations, sufferings, hurts? Great is your reward in heaven. And this, this is the church. See, this is the church in Sperna. Let me give you a, the second word that, that is uh, the city. The city. The second C is city. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Smyrna itself. It was 35 miles north of Ephesus. Now, again, we studied Ephesus the last couple of weeks. It was called the first of Asia in beauty. Uh, it was, excuse me, it was described as first of Asia in beauty and size. It was about 250 to 400,000 people. Probably a little smaller, by the way. There wasn't, uh, you know, um, uh, population. What do they, what do they call that? Uh, Census. They, were, they didn't take a census, so we're just trying to figure out probably 250, 300, 400,000 people. It was big. Do you happen to have that uh, map? Um, so again, about 35 miles, like right here is Patmos, and there's Ephesus, what we've been studying, about 35 miles north is Smyrna. Now, whereas Patmos was a port city, Smyrna was also. That's why they were so big, okay? Uh, ships were coming in. They were a very wealthy city, they called themselves the ornament of Asia. You know, um, again, ranked with Ephesus and Pergama as the first of Asia. It was right on the Hermas River that came in. You can't see that because it's not a big enough map, but the, it dumped into a river right to Smyrna. Therefore, they were uh, very, very wealthy. They had much learning, much learning in the sciences, much learning in, in medicine. I mean, you kind of get the whole thing. They had a, a huge library. They had a huge public theater. You know, when you start getting all kinds of money, you, you build things. Build things to be, kind of become the greatest. And they, they were that. They had a, what they, uh, from the harbor, 500 feet up, they had Mount Pegas. And it was on that mountain where all the, the idols, the temples of the idols were found. In fact, the whole mountain kind of came around. It was called the, the crown, okay? Uh, the crown of Smyrna. And so you had all these temples on this hill. In fact, they had one golden street. And the one temple of uh, Cybele was on one end of the street. And uh, the temple of Zeus was on the other. And there was a number of other temples. And it was called the golden street. I mean, in other words, if you were a... Um, a citizen of, of Smyrna, you know. Look at our grandeur. Look at our greatness. Look at our library. Look at our theater. Look at the wealth. Look at the ships coming in with all their goods. And we're like the, the gateway to the east. Very, 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 very proud. But again, because they had so many pagan temples, now there's a conflict between true Christianity, right? That's, that's the first reason why there's tremendous suffering here because they had all these pagan temples but the other is this that this was one of the centers of caesar worship now again i got to tell you something about caesar we're going to keep hearing about caesar worship it started in the 20s uh, but now by this point in 81 uh, bc or ad excuse me ad it became a whereas it used to be optional by 81, by 81 A.D., Domitian made it, uh, what does that mean? When it's mandatory. 
they had to do it every year, okay? And it was in Smyrna that the center of this was. And all you had to do was take a little pinch of incense, throw it on the fire, Caesar is Lord, you get a little certificate, you're good to go for another year. Maybe you had to pay something, I don't know. Hmm. Man is forever trying to get wealth, aren't they? Taxes. Uh, but the point is, is this. It really wasn't so much a religious thing because the, the, uh, the Caesars would allow you to worship whatever God. It really was a political thing. In other words, you are, you are pledging allegiance to Caesar. That's what you're doing. I pledge allegiance to... By the way, you've got to be careful how we pledge allegiance. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I love America, but my allegiance is to Christ. Is, is your allegiance to Christ? Uh, that, may ha- that will be tested, and that may will, it, it will be tested. But again, Christ, or excuse me, Christians could not do the incense. They could not do it because, again, they could not say that Caesar is Lord when they knew that Christ is Lord. So that was a direct conflict. Not only that, but notice in your text, verse 9, but you are a synagogue of Satan. They're Jews and they are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. And so there was a huge Jewish population in Smyrna, and, and Christ actually named them as a synagogue of Satan. <laughs> so again, you have Jews against the Christians, you had the Caesar worship against the Christians, and you had all these temples against true Christianity. And there was all this pressure. You didn't just have a church down the road. I mean, these Christians would have met in homes. It is interesting uh, that Smyrna comes for the word, from the word myrrh. Now, if you know a little study of myrrh, when Jesus was born and the wise men came, what did they give him? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Well, gold represented uh, him being king, but you know what myrrh was? The fact that he would someday, there would be suffering in his life. Myrrh was in, uh, connected with destined to suffering. When he was on the cross, he was given, or at least handed wine mingled with myrrh, but he didn't take it. When he was embalmed, it says in John 19, the the embalming mixture was of myrrh and aloes, 100 pound. Myrrh was used for dead people. Myrrh was used to embalm people. And it was, even, even when he was born, it was given, I believe, as almost like a signal, yes, and this, this baby will suffer. Behold the Lamb of God that, what, takes away the sin of the world. Yes, he will suffer, but not for his own sin, but for ours. Praise God. So the city is Smyrna, named after the, Frank, or the uh, uh, of myrrh. Well, let's look at the third thing, the correspondent. Starts in verse 8, second part. These things say is the first and the last. This is Christ. Notice how Christ is referred to here. First and the last, who was dead and came to life. And I believe these three different ways of referring to Christ, how he refers to himself, specifically is ministering to a suffering church. The first is, I'm the first and the last. Which means this, he knows the, the end from the beginning. He knows he was here before the church started. In fact, he was from all eternity past to eternity future. I'm the first and the last. Actually, we find this same um, sentence in the Old Testament referring to God the Father. So Jesus, and and we saw this in chapter 1, Jesus is continually uh, giving evidences that he is indeed God, just like the Father. Just like the Father is the eternal one, the Son is the eternal one, the self-sufficient one. In fact, if you want the verse, it's uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6. This is the Old Testament using this phrase, first and the last. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, that's the Father, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And to both of them, he says this, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now again, back in the Old Testament, they had all those same type of gods, right? All the pagans had their gods, but, but, uh, but in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, but God is the only God. Which again reminds us of the Trinity. This just what it does is, and we saw the Trinity in chapter one, the first few verses. But we just keep seeing the fact that that uh, God is one, but in three persons, one essence, three persons. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each are equal 
each are completely God. And each of these names, references, can apply to either the Son, the Father, or even the Spirit. So he just sets himself on and says, I am the first and the last. Which means, again, he will remain. He was before, he will be after all the other false gods. He will be before and after when the church is no longer in existence, right? You know, in the local church, the earthly church. I'm the first and the last. I mean, that just gives us... He remains. (laughs) Is that a great comfort to you that he remains? That he is all-powerful, that where we are is just a little dot of time, that he's even before time, he is, he is beyond time. He knows the end from the beginning because he's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He was before all that we see and know. He will be here when all is gone. He is, so the bottom line is this, he's not only the eternal one, he is the sufficient one. Jesus Christ wants to make sure his little church in Smyrna realizes that he is the sufficient one. And then he says this, which is really kind of odd, and who, or excuse me, who was dead. Not that he was dead before, but he was the first and last who was dead. And obviously that's referring to his death. It literally means who became a corpse. The sun became a quartz. And as uh, one guy said, the emphasis of this is on the event. Not the st- status of his death, just the fact that at a point in time, the, the living one, the first and the last, was dead. And again, we're going to be celebrating that Resurrection Sunday, the fact that he went to the gray, or excuse me, he went to the cross, he died for our sins, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, but he, he died. He was dead. He died once, by the way, just dead, not dead many times, just dead. He died once at the hands of wicked men, but then conquered death and hell for us all, who would ever ever believe in him. So I became dead. So that was dead literally could be became a corpse or I became dead. I became dead. Remember he said, John, you know, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own court. I was the one that did it. Now, why would this matter to us, the Smyrna church? Because they're, they're seeing their own people suffer. They are being threatened with death. And Jesus Christ says, but I am the first and the last. And I was dead. I have passed through death to life. In fact, that's the next part. And came to life. So I was dead, but I came to life. That's that new era of, res- of Christ's life after his resurrection. That's what he's referring to. In fact, the same exact uh, statement was found in chapter 1, verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That's Revelation 1, 18. We, we had studied that a few weeks ago. I'm the living one. I was dead. I'm the living one. Came to life. Resurrection. Praise God. Because he lives what? We live. He is our life, Colossians 3 says. Uh, In Romans chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. His death no longer is master, death is no longer master over him. He died once. Like Hebrews 9 says, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, just one time. He came to this earth as the perfect son of God. He went to the cross. He died, but it would only be one sacrifice, one complete sacrifice. Perfect sacrifice. Isn't that great? And he actually shows you. In other words, if you know that and you've received him, he revealed that to you. And so can you see how that can be a real encouragement to this suffering church in Smyrna who are looking out and seeing all these temples and they know that just in another three months, let's say, that they're going to have to be called upon to again offer to Caesar and they're not going to do it and they don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know if a Roman guard is going to you know, bust down the door and take them to jail and torture them and possibly even crucify them. And they get this letter from the risen Lord and says, you know what? I'm the first and the last. I was dead, and I came to life. We, he's, the, in other words, the victorious one. Now again, they're huddling. I like how Chuck Swindoll writes. 
leading up to verse 9, he says this, Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp-lit room houses the remaining beaten and beleaguered uh, church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now features obvious gaps where men and women, women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others simply gone because they've been arrested, exiled, or even executed. Some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning to pray, sing hymns to God, and to read from the Holy Scriptures. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, your pastor unrolls a scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet assurance. Whispering and shuffling in the room ceases when you hear who sent the message, the risen Lord himself. The entire group seems to hold its breath when Christ begins his commendation. And it starts in verse 9. I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So, can you imagine being there? And you just need a word of hope. And as the pastor unrolls, you begin to realize, wait, this is not from him. This is from him. You think that would encourage your heart? Lord, just tell me. I like how, by the way, Swindoll wrote that. You know, they were willing to suffer. Why? They were willing to risk their lives just to meet together to pray, sing, and read. Do you do that? No, none of us did that today, right? Risk our lives to be here? You know what? I have a number of things that are going on in my life, but I need to be there. I need to be with God's people. I need to hear His Word. I need to have fellowship. I need to be encouraged by the saints. You know what? Maybe not now, but you know what? Those who feel that, are the ones that are usually going through deep waters. See, the deeper the water you go through, if you're, if you're a biblical Christian, you start saying, you know what, I need God's people. I need to be encouraged and comforted by God's people. I know your works. He gives three different things. Just the, I know your works happens in each of, the, each of the letters. Each of the seven letters, he starts you know, by the, the commendation, if there is a commendation, by saying, I know your works. So this is a common. I know your works, but, but he says tribulation. See, I know your tribulation. The tribulation there is a pressing. It, it, it's from the root that is used to press grapes. Not this word, but the root of this word was used of the pressing of grapes. You put all the grapes in and you put the pressure down to squeeze the juice out. That's what it was used. You ever feel like that? Pressed? Christ says, I know, I know who you are, I know everything about you, and I know that you're being pressed. That's the word tribulation. It refers to oppression, affliction. The term paints a picture of a huge rock crushing whatever's beneath it. (laughs) You ever feel crushed by the world? Hopefully you're not crushed by your sin, but that can crush you too. But this tribulation is... It's from the world and from your flesh and from Satan. Especially the world and Satan. It's that constant, impress, that constant pressure. In fact, normally this word was not only the constant pressure, but the constant pressure leading to death. That's how usually this word tribulation is used. This, the fact that you're going to suffer. By the way, we shouldn't be surprised of, of suffering. We shouldn't be surprised. I think sometimes we get surprised. I know at times I've been surprised of the little things I've had to suffer. Little, little, little. Just little things. Let me say that one more time, little. I say that because, you know, when we say suffering, and if a a Chinese Christian or an Indian Christian from Orissa was sitting right there, they'd say, small perspective. You have no idea what the suffering really is. But yet the Bible says this, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. 2 Timothy says, yes, and all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Or John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you, you may have peace. Now, you're going to have peace, but in the world you're going to have tribulation. Same exact word as, But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when you have to go through hard times. Now, again, what did they have? They had the idols, the temple idols. They had worship of Caesar they had to deal with. And reject. They had the synagogue of Satan. Even the Jews themselves were out to destroy them. By the way, you might ask, I think I might have mentioned this many weeks ago, but why were they so hated? Let's face it, Christians love. <laughs> Christians, I mean, if you look at around the world, all the good things in different societies, it's usually somehow related back to Christians. Hospitals themselves, Christians. Take care. Help. Why are Christians so hated? Well, because the truths of God's word were spun in such a way that made them look ungodly. Example. Because Christians partook of, the, of Christ's body and blood, you know, Lord's table, they were considered cannibals. So what was going around in Smyrna is, you know, you know, you know, don't go near that group. If you ever find that group, they'll try to eat you. Because they were called, they called their meal the agape feast, the love feast. Now think where that might go. They were just full of orgies of lust. So they're cannibals and they're lustful. And because Christians at times did split from families because you had to love Christ more than even your father or mother, they were called anti-family. They're not even, they're not even pro-family. And because they worshipped the invisible God, they said they didn't worship a God because it wasn't like an idol in a temple where you could actually see it. They were considered atheists because they worshipped in spirit and truth. And because they wouldn't, worship, they wouldn't uh, bow down to Caesar and call him Lord and, and give political allegiance to Caesar, they were revolutionaries. And because they taught that the end of the world would come with fire and everything would be burned up, they were called incendiaries. I mean, let's face it, would you want to get together with a group that were cannibals, had orgies of lust, were anti-family, atheists, revolutionary, and incendiary. No, you better stay away from that group. And yet, it grew. But they had tribulation. They had tribulation. Point. There is a point to why I'm saying this. Don't expect the world to understand you. I think sometimes we try to prove ourselves. They are not going to understand us. You will be misunderstood. You will be maligned. I'm not saying you can't be, seek to be a citizen and be even perhaps, just, just see, seek to live a, a, a gentle and quiet life, a peaceful, quiet life. Yes, vote the right guy in, but know that they're probably all pagans. I mentioned this. You know, many of you looked at uh, the president of uh, Israel gave his speech. Just remember, though, he's still a Jew without Christ. He needs salvation. Don't put him too high on a pedestal. You need to pray for the guy. He needs to get saved. I've often wondered. I wonder if he'll be the president of Israel when Jesus Christ comes back. Next thing. Jesus knows this. Look at this. You are, I know your poverty. By the way, that poverty there, that word is used not just to not have the essentials. They didn't have anything. It's the word destitute. Abject poverty. Jesus says, you have poverty. I see your poverty. But notice what he adds. But you are rich. But you are rich. See, they were, they were not wealthy of, uh, before this world. It, it's sad how sometimes Christians, some, some people think they're rich, but they're really poor. Others are poverty-stricken, but they're really rich. Think of the rich, young, or not, the rich man who builds, buys, uh, builds bigger barns. But before he even gave that illustration, Jesus said this, and he said to them, Beware and be, guard, be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. 
His life does not consist of his possessions. Be careful that we don't see the blessing of God as what we have on this earth. Because these people had nothing. They were destitute. And yet Jesus was able to say to them what? But you are rich. Don't judge your spirituality. Don't judge your uh, connection with God by what you have on this earth. These guys were dirt poor. And that they had great wealth. Because it was all spiritual. And then finally, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Just write this one verse down, Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. What he's getting at is this, is what Paul said in Romans. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew. He is a true Jew, in other words, Paul's saying, who is one inwardly. In other words, spiritually, the person is not a Jew because just of his heritage, just because of blood, physical blood. He is a true Jew if he is walking in the faith of his father, Abraham. So Paul says this in 2.29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is, from, is not from men, but from God. So who is a true Jew? One who is truly a believer in Jesus Christ walks in the faith of Abraham. And that's why Jesus says of these Jews, they are of the synagogue of Satan. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, they have rejected Christ. Not only that, they are seeking to destroy the program of Christ. Synagogue of Satan. So they're, they're pressed down just like a big rock, just smashing them. They're, they've seen people suffer. They've seen even people probably die around them. And God, in Christ, writes to them this letter. Now notice three final things. There is no concern. In other words, there's no correction. There's nothing that he asks that they do. By the way, suffering often does that, right? Suffering in our life purifies us. Because they are not perfect. (laughs) Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Not perfect. But the suffering, the trials have purified this congregation. And Jesus says nothing as far as that they have to change. He's encouraging them, but he's not confronting them. But then he says this in verse 10. Do not fear any of these things. This is his counsel. This is the wonderful counselor giving counsel. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Listen, they were suffering, but now he's saying, but you're going to even suffer more. You're about to suffer. There's more suffering coming. You know, when you get a letter, you want to get like, you know, and things are going to get better from here. No. You're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil uses, again, he used synagogue of Satan. Now he uses the word devil. Is about to throw some of you into prison. Now we find the source of their suffering. It's Satan himself. That you may be tested. And you, have, and, and, and you have, will have tribulation ten days. That probably means literally ten days. By the way, back then, prisons were not used for uh, punishment. They were just a holding tank to get you to the trial. And then you were either found innocent or found guilty and, and killed. So when we see they're in prison, that was just a holding tank. They were just waiting for uh, uh, you know, what was going to happen. Were they found guilty or innocent? But what does he say to this group? Knowing that suffering is going to come. First of all, don't fear. Do not fear. It's in the imperative. Fear nothing. Stop being afraid. Stop being phobio. <laughs> don't be afraid. And you say, Lord, how can we do this? We are afraid. I, I think of the psalmist in Psalms 4 where it says... Of the psalmist, you have enlarged me in my distress. The idea is that the, the, that the Spirit of God, uh, well, the word is relieved, but it literally means enlarge. In other words, when we go through stress, God enlarges, as it were, our heart. He, he enlarges our ability to handle the suffering. Psalms 4.1. See, he's not saying, do not fear, just pull yourself up by your own bootstrap. Come on. No, he gives them truth to live by. Don't fear. And then he says this, be faithful unto death, i.e., some of you are going to die even. Some of you are going to suffer. Some of you have great pain. Some of you are even going to die. And I will give, if you are faithful, and the root word of faithful there means to be fully persuaded, to be convinced. In other words, you have conviction 
be faithful, be convicted, be convinced of these truths that I'm going to give you. If we're going to be faithful in the time of suffering, we have to be absolutely convinced of the truth. And he gives us the truth. If you're faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Now you say, what's the crown of life? That's the first promise here. Is this like a reward of eternal life? No, no. We know that eternal life is not a reward. Because Ephesians and many other passages says this. What? For by grace have you been... For by grace? What? You've been saved. You have you've been saved. What? Uh, I should never ask because then it's... <laughs> For by grace have you been saved. Through faith. Not of... Oh, wow. I Now I'm missing it. I know, but actually, I shouldn't have asked you because then it just confuses me because I, I've learned it in two, two different versions. If, let's just go to Ephesians. For by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, now by the time I get there, not of works, unless anyone... Okay. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, in other words, not of works, not of the things that you do, lest anyone should boast. No, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Boy, I really butchered that, let me tell you. A verse that I've known since I was a junior in high school, you know. The point is, is this. This is the point. Why am I saved grace? How? Conduit faith. Because what? God gave it as what? A free gift. Not of works. Why? Why, why not of works? Well, first of all, my righteousness is as filthy rags, but second of all, I would boast. That's what the text says. So what is this? What is this crown, Stephanos, crown of life? It's not eternal life itself. That was received even, even if they weren't faithful to the very end. What if they rejected? In other words, they, uh, they weren't faithful completely, and they, they bent for just a moment of time, and they didn't confess Christ perfectly. Would they have lost salvation? He's not getting at that. Really, because, because of this. It's the crown of life. And so I believe, as one man said this, quote, the crown that consists of a full experience of eternal life, i.e. this, in heaven, with the reward of all the things that you have done as far as works on this earth, some will, in, some will experience eternal life to a greater degree than others. That's all I'm trying to say. To a greater degree. Now you say, is that... I thought everyone was equal in heaven. No. That's the whole reason we live a godly life on this earth. That's the whole reason for the Bema. That's the whole reason to be judged at the Bema seat. This is just a fuller experience of the eternal life that we all have. We all have eternal life if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But some will have a fuller experience. I would say it this way. Those who sacrificed on this earth will be rewarded in the next life. Greater reward. So be faithful. That's all the point is. And then the final call, the final challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He gives us one final promise. Not only will you have a fuller experience of eternal life, but look at this one. He who overcomes, now this is a true believer, shall not be hurt by the second death. Second death is the judgment at the final great white throne where those who are found unbelievers are thrown what? Alive into the lake of fire. Physical death may touch you on this earth, but Jesus promises that, that eternal damnation, the second death, will not touch you on the next, on the next, in the next life. So he gives them this promise. Just stay faithful. Because your greatest fear, your greatest enemy, second death, damnation, separation from God for eternity, I will keep you from that. Because I paid the penalty for your sin. Or as maybe you've seen the t-shirt, he who was born once will die twice. He who was born twice, both physically and spiritually born twice, will only die once. I love that. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So what are the final conclusions? Some of the things you can kind of chew on. First of all, our Lord knows every detail of our circumstances. He's the first and the last. Every detail. Number two, even if our suffering intensifies, we need to go, now this is important, we need to go through it and not fear or flee from it. 
When it comes to suffering, and by the way, this is the same is true of trials. What God asks us to do is not to go around trials and suffering, but to go through it with his grace. That is huge. And you can prove it by going to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and the six times that, G, uh, that Paul used the word in. I'm going to be, I'm in my affliction and in my weakness. The idea in, through. God wants you to go through it because you'll see his strength and power that way. And then finally, a temptation. There's always a temptation in suffering to doubt God's goodness. There's always that temptation. Whether the suffering is physical, financial, relational, whether that suffering even is maybe uh, as far as the, the church as a whole, I mean, how you relate. When we go through suffering, when we go be misunderstood and all that, there's a tendency to doubt God's goodness. But what does Jesus say? Be faithful unto death. Faithful is this. Faithful to who I am. Be absolutely convinced of who I am. Just go back to the things he's been saying. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one that was dead and I'm alive forevermore. I'm the one, I am the resurrection and the life. If I live, you live. Be faithful to who he is. There's a famous, famous story. It comes out of the, the second century. It comes out of a man named Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, at the time that I'm telling you this, was 86 years old. The reason that's important is Polycarp was a young man when this letter of the letter to the church at Smyrna was received by John. Okay, Polycarp was probably sitting in that congregation when this letter was being read. And 86 years, he was 86 years old, so they're about, about 60 years later from this time. There was heavy persecution going on in that whole region, especially in Smyrna. And they captured Polycarp. They actually captured him because there was an informant, a young uh, man informed on where Polycarp would be. And Polycarp was the pastor, the bishop, the very godly man. Everybody knew Polycarp. In fact, they loved him so much that even the Roman officials who were told to destroy him, to burn him, didn't want to do it. They wanted him to recant. All you have to do is recant. And actually, when he was going towards the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the burning pile and he was going to be strapped on, he even told the guard, you don't have to strap me on. And they, they only did it loosely. He said, you know, I'm basically in the hands of God. And the Jews, they said, were like, I mean, this was on a Sunday and, and they, or on a Saturday. And they were, um, even though they weren't supposed to work, they were more than happy to bring the wood. And it, it, the story goes, literally it was all been written down, that they brought as much wood, I mean, they just, they wanted to see this guy burn. I mean, that was the rage of the Jews. But this is what he said as he, as he was being tried, he was told to recant. Uh, again, 60 years later, he's 86, which is, I just thought of my, the age of my grandfather. And this was his words. 86 years I have served Christ. And he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Isn't that a great way to die? I mean, really. He just, you know what? That's faithful unto death. I knew, I know who the savior is. How could I ever blaspheme him? He's done me good all my years. I trust that's how you're looking at your life. Lord, whatever happens, may I be faithful. The time to get that right is right now. Are you, willing, are you willing to live for Jesus Christ and even die for him as a living sacrifice no matter what? Are you? Because we, don't we whine about a lot of insignificant things? No, we need to put a priority as walking with him. Living for him, being faithful to him. Let's stand.